0: Well, the last time we were together in John, it's been a little while, you know, we were in the Gospel of John in chapter 6, and we took some time to go through that great Bread of Life sermon, and before the sermon there was, of course, the feeding of the 5,000 on the hillside, which then issued forth into the, the sermon about the Bread of Life, really it was just preparation for that great sermon, By the time Jesus, you know, got to the end of his sermon, he basically lost his church and had his 12 disciples left standing there. As he had called the crowd to commitment, as he had called the crowd to what he was really all about, so many of them simply didn't want to go any further. They were happy to get fed by the bread. They were happy to hang around Jesus. They were happy to be part of a movement. But when it came time to really committing their lives, they left, almost all of them. So out of that, we then got into the discussion of um, Judas Iscariot. We did a message dealing with Judas Iscariot, which was uh, a grieving thing to think about, but at the same time, fascinating to study the life of someone who could know so much, experience so much, and yet turn away and be lost. So we looked at Judas, and then we come to the end of chapter 6. Well. By the time you get to chapter 7, just from the break there, there is uh, quite a gap in time. In fact, there is about seven months gap in time. And I'd like to read over a few of the verses just to kind of set them into our thinking, and then we'll begin to s- discuss some of them. In verse 1, it says, After these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for He did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill Him. It, is, it has become a very intense and volatile time in the life of Jesus Christ imagine being in his little group you know the numbers go up and down all the time but by the time you come to John 7 1 again it's it's been small for some time and I'll show you what I mean by that in a moment but imagine being on that little team and you literally walk around every day with the idea in your mind one of us is going to get killed now we know for sure they're trying to murder Jesus. So you've got murder on your mind. Imagine the tension. As we come to John 7, we're kind of coming effectively to the third phase in our Lord's ministry. He's been about two years into it now. He has spent most of the time recently around Galilee. He started out in uh, Jerusalem up front, but he hasn't really been there in close to a couple of years. He will, in this chapter, go back to Jerusalem and basically finish off his ministry there. John is pretty much occupied with the events of Jesus around Jerusalem and his gospel. He leaves it to the other writers to deal with uh, so many of the other things around Galilee. But it's a volatile time. It is the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. That's why we know it's been about seven months since we were with him at the feeding of the 5,000 because that was at Passover. And there's about a seven-month period between the Passover feast, celebration, and all of that, and then the Feast of Tabernacles. So the time is going by. He's rapidly moving to the end of his ministry. There's tension in the air. Everybody knows who he is. Yet he remains in Galilee for the sustained period of time, By the time he goes back to Jerusalem, and we'll see that in this chapter as we get into it, you have to picture Jerusalem as being filled with all the pilgrims for the um, Passover feast. The religious leaders have murder on their mind. So timing is absolutely critical as we come to John 7, and thus there's much here to tell us about timing for our own lives. So the feast of the Passover was at hand, His brothers tell him here they want him to go up to Judea, and he says, My time hasn't come, verse 6. And then we find out in verse 10, having said he wasn't going to go to the feast, he does go up, but in secret. So these are the things that are here. Basically, his timing in discipleship, first thought. His timing in conversion, second and his timing in God's will. Let's talk about his timing in discipleship and it comes really in the very first part of verse one. In verse one, you read after these things, the events of John six, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. May I say it was a seven month long walk. It was a long walk. He's walking literally around on foot in this area. So in this gap of about seven months, Jesus basically spends that time with 12 people, with 12 people, and he taught them. He taught them day in, day out, month in, month out. It was during that time, for example, that he taught them that he was going to be rejected of men and he would die in Jerusalem. It was during that time, for example, that he took a couple of select ones, the really close ones with him, up to the Mount of Transfiguration, and he showed them his glory. But mainly, during that time, he focused on the twelve closest of his disciples. In other words, at that point, everything else in his life and ministry was extraneous. The issue was the twelve men. Just to sort of give you a perspective on this, if you think about the fact that he spent around two days with the multitudes at the feeding of the 5,000 if you count the day on the hillside and then he sends them across the lake the next day, the bread of life sermon that's around two days he spends two days with the 30,000 people and the fluctuating crowd there he spends seven months seven months with 12 it's interesting it's fascinating, you know why? because there's a lesson here and you know what the lesson is? The lesson is, really all across the pages of the New Testament, it is this. Jesus came to make disciples. Jesus came to make disciples. You know what He said in Matthew 28? He said, go into all the world and have mass meetings. No. He said, go therefore into the world, and He said, make disciples of all nations. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Well, that is quite a full job, isn't it? To make even one disciple a true one is a a difficult task. So he is saying, when you go out into your Christian life, as you grow and time goes by, there's going to be a focus on your mind I want you to carry with you. And that is this, go make disciples. And the amazing thing is to watch him do it. To watch the focus of his life and of his ministry. You see, his focus was not on mass meetings. But you notice, he had lots of mass meetings, right? I mean, we just mentioned the number of the crowd and the feeding of the 5,000. There was the feeding of the 4,000 men plus women and children. There were always the multitudes that um, walked all over to get to Jesus as the common people heard him gladly. But though he used mass meetings, and though there is definitely a place for mass meetings, because certainly you want as many people to get in front of you to hear the gospel message as possible. So there is a place for mass meetings, and I'm not downplaying that. And though Jesus did not downplay that and used it, he was really always focused on discipleship. So when you study the life of Jesus, what you come to realize is this, that size is not the issue. Size is not the issue, true discipleship is the issue. Understand that? Size is not the issue, true discipleship is the issue. What he was after was the kind of disciples who were so thoroughly discipled to be like him, to understand what he came to bring to a man, to bring to a woman, that they could turn around and reproduce themselves in others. That was the issue. Now listen very closely to this, Unless you missed it. The success, the success of any church, I don't care what their name is, what the denomination, whatever, persuasion, the success of any church is not the numbers. It is the depth of discipleship in the lives of each individual. The question is, is your life changing? The question is, is your heart changing to the point that it affects your marriage? The question is, have you been taught enough Bible in such a way as to be strongly encouraged to live it out so that you're a different kind of parent so you're a different kind of brother you're a different kind of sister so that in the end what you have is a true disciple who is somebody that is like Jesus Christ now here's an interesting thing getting a crowd is not that difficult there's a lot of ways to get a crowd I mean so many different ways And certainly the whole church growth movement is bent on techniques and programs for getting a a crowd. And certainly the user-friendly type uh, mentality in the church today. And uh, watering down the gospel is bent on making it easier to have a bigger crowd. Getting a crowd is not so much an issue. There's so many ways to do it in these days. What is difficult? Getting a crowd is not so difficult. What is difficult is taking a man or a woman from the point where they come to know Christ and they have so many things in their life that sin has put there. Attitudes, philosophies, feelings, emotions, all of this, life patterns, and discipling them into freedom from that. And not just freedom from that, but into all the things of Christ that he wants to replace those old things with. That is difficult. In other words, to make a truly godly disciple is a difficult thing. It is a difficult thing. And that is because it takes a life poured into another life. It takes someone who is willing, as Jesus said, to be a peacemaker. Do you know what a peacemaker is? Some people have the idea that to be a peacemaker is simply to persuade people to stop the shooting and call a truce... Uh, even if they reload and later start shooting again you know it's just to get people to stop shooting to make peace to say you're sorry but if you examine peacemaker in the Bible and really study it you'll find this is what a peacemaker is it is someone who is willing to love you enough to bring the truth to bear on the sin in the situation so that the sin can be dealt with and eliminated so that when it is gone the peace that passes all understanding will remain in its place. You understand that? Willing to bring the truth to bear on the sin that is there so it can be dealt with and removed and the righteousness and the peace of Christ can replace it because there can be no peace that passes understanding until sin is dealt with. So if you really love someone and you're discipling them, you will work against in their life all the things that undermine righteousness. And there are classic things that the Bible points out about that. Pride is one, you know, uh, worldliness is one, and so on. So, to pour your life into someone, to, to lead them to the point of being a true disciple, is a difficult thing. It is a difficult thing. You know why? Because a lot of people want to be a part of a large crowd, but they don't necessarily want to become a true disciple. You understand the difference? I mean, there's a certain excitement in a the crowd, there's a certain enthusiasm and, you know, a certain amount of fun and everything involved with being part of a, a big group. But when you look at John 6, 66, could you go back there in your Bible, just to John, last chapter, 6, verse 66. You find this statement about Jesus, and here you are face to face with the most flawless shepherd, the most loving shepherd you are face to face with the finest preacher who ever lived it wasn't Paul it wasn't Spurgeon it wasn't Moody it was Jesus Christ everything is perfect everything is flawless and it says from that time many of his disciples went back and it was final they walked with him no more that was it then Jesus said to how many in contrast to the many that walked with him no more he turned around he said to how many what's the number Twelve. twelve isn't that staggering Where's the 30,000? He says to 12. He says, do you also want to go away? It is difficult to make a true disciple, but Jesus came to make true disciples. Now follow me on this. Turn in your Bible, if you could, to 2 Timothy, to chapter 1, to verse 11. We're going to go from Jesus the discipler, to Paul the discipler, to Timothy the disciple, and I want to show you a common thread through there. 2 Timothy one eleven, Paul's talking about the gospel, and he says, To which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles. God appointed me to do this. Then he says, And for this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. So, Paul writing to Timothy here, passing on some of the last business of discipleship. This is Paul's last letter before he dies. He passes this on. He says, Timothy, here's what it's like to be a discipler. You uh, are called to it by God, and every one of us as Christians are called to it, and you suffer because of it. You know, Jesus himself said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you because the student becomes as his master, so prepare yourself for it. Timothy, it'll be hard. And so he says, know this, I'm persuaded he's able to keep me. He'll keep you, Timothy. And then he says this in verse 13, therefore hold fast the pattern of sound words. Timothy, remember what I taught you. Remember what we experienced together, what you saw in my life. He said, what you heard from me, in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus, the good thing which was committed to you, verse 14, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. How difficult was the process of discipleship for the Apostle Paul? You would think, we're talking the master disciple here. Master evangelist, master teacher, nobody like him, except Jesus Christ, who of course was God. You wonder, how, how was it for Paul to be in this line of discipling He already told us it was hard, but how hard? And as time went by, how many in the crowd who wanted to be in the crowd didn't really want to be disciples after all as time went by? You have the answer? I mean, how many people do you know in your life who are backslidden? How many people do you know who came to Christ in the Jesus movement who are on their way straight to hell right now? They they don't care about Christ and they've proven it for years and years. How many people do you know who sat by you in church Who are living in sin now Backslid and turned away from God You see It isn't easy And yet it is what we are called to You want to know how difficult it was for Paul He is in a dungeon, rat infested Facing death within hours Perhaps days, hours And he writes this statement He says this you know That all Those in Asia Have turned away from me All of them. Isn't that something? The guy had traveled all over Asia. The guy had planted churches all over Asia. He had remained years in different places, preaching, teaching, working with people side by side. All those in Asia have turned away from me. And he cites a couple of examples. He said, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. He says, the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. Here he is. He's got all this track record of travel, preaching, 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 working, 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 discipling, teaching, teaching, teaching. All those in Asia have turned away from me. He cites one name, Onesiphorus, a guy who often refreshed me. Here is a wonderful true disciple, you see, that hung in there. And in verse 17, he says, But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. Many turned away from Jesus. He turned to the twelve. Paul says, All in Asia have forsaken me. He mentions one. Then in verse 17, when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously, and he found me. The Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day, and you know very well how many ways he ministered to me in Ephesus. He's just citing a, a fellow faithful true disciple to encourage Timothy. Timothy 2.2, verse 1, he says, You therefore, in light of all this, my son, he said, be strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ, So critical. Timothy, I was called to it. Timothy, the Lord did it. Timothy, you're called to it. Timothy, you must do it. Timothy, it won't be easy. Timothy, therefore, be strong in the grace that is in our Lord Jesus Christ because he wants to channel it through you to touch the lives of those that want to become true disciples. This is so critical because of what he says next. Everything leads to this. Verse 2. Of chapter 2 of 2nd Timothy. And the things which you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You see, Timothy, it's hard. Get the picture. Be real. Timothy, many will leave. Get the picture. Be real. Timothy, but this is the thing, that whatever anybody else does around you, this is what you're called to. You take the things you've heard from me among many witnesses which you know the the proof of his life of his example of his fruit everything take these things and find other men like yourself who will be faithful men who will be able to teach the others also in other words Jesus turns to the twelve and he says are you going to go and they said where will we go you have the words of eternal life Lord there's nowhere else to go Timothy, find men like that and pour your life into them. Find men that will be faithful to the whole truth, nothing but the truth, with God's help. And he says, the kind of people that will then teach others also, because this, brethren, is the way we fulfill the Great Commission. It isn't just mass meetings. It's one disciple after the next. And God wants to take your life, He wants you to understand the reality of it. Those of you that will go to the mission field, He wants you to know before you go how hard it will be. As you look at the life of Paul, as you look at the life of Jesus, Timothy. Those of you that will someday be in the ministry, maybe pastoring, maybe assisting, maybe married to a pastor, one of you ladies, whatever, maybe overseeing a ministry, those of you that do now. He wants you to understand the reality of it so that you slam the door in the face of the devil. If you understand the hardship and if you understand he's the source, then when he comes, you know, to try to warp your brain and get you discouraged, you look at the scripture and you just say, Well, this is the way it has been. I'm in classy company. You you might be saying right now, well, okay, I have the point. But what is a true disciple? What is a true disciple? It is one, look at Second 2 Timothy 2.3. He says, therefore you must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. A true disciple is one who can become a reproducer. One who can lead others into true discipleship. That involves being someone who can take the heat. That involves enduring hardship and still remaining Christ-like. So let me give it to you another way. What is a true disciple? Someone like Christ, it's when you're like Christ Is there any way Jesus really condensed it And made it real simple for us? Yes, I want to show it to you It's in Matthew chapter 5 Matthew chapter 5 Could you turn in your Bible there? Matthew chapter 5 And I want you to ask yourself if this is you, okay? I have to ask myself if if this is me Matthew 5 Here you have the combination of the mass meeting, then you have the small discipleship. In Matthew 5-1, it says, "...in seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them." It looks to me like, and you can, you know, hit it from both ways, but it looks to me like the Beatitudes are given to the disciples. The multitudes are everywhere. So again, it seems he climbs up into the mountain, wants to get away from them, perhaps. Then his disciples come and sit down and they start talking about the real issues. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's true discipleship. It's all about being broken in your spirit, humble before God. You see God as he really is and you see yourself as you really are. You see God in his rich spiritual wealth and you see your own personal spiritual bankruptcy. It is a humbling thing to become poor in spirit. It is Isaiah in the temple. Woe is me, I am all undone. As he sees the glory of Christ and he becomes deeply aware of his own sin and his helplessness before God because of his sin. That is what true discipleship is all about. You are one who is poor in spirit. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, Blessed are those who mourn. Once you're in that position where you see yourself and your great need before God, that you're utterly hopeless without Him, then you begin to mourn over your sin, right? Lord, I see my sin. God, help me. And you mourn over it. You're broken over your sin and you're deeply aware for the rest of your life of the capacity within you to be sinful. And as long as you're near God, it never escapes you, never. And then He says, Blessed are the meek, well, they shall inherit the earth. Now, can you understand how you would become meek? If you get to the point where you see God as He really is, you see yourself as you really are, whatever you were before that, successful, drove your big Mercedes with the tinted windows, had all the little things, you know, all that, whatever. When you get to the point where you see, spiritually, you're bankrupt, You're utterly dependent on God, utterly. You begin to mourn over your sin. Now you begin to become meek. And meekness is strength under control. It's a blend of humility and strength. That as you grow in the Christian life, should ever be increasing, stronger in the strength of the Lord, strong in the power of His might. But as you get closer and closer to Him, you continue to see Him ever more as He really is and ever more yourself as you really are. Thus, You have a growing strength and a growing humility. And the humility leaves you surrendered to God to be under His control. They use the word in the time of Jesus for for the training and the breaking of stallions. You bring in a wild stallion from the wilderness. And he's all full of strength. The picture of it. And he will not let anyone control him. But by the time he's done, you stick your foot in the stirrup. Hop up on the saddle. And you take hold of the bridle, this little, this little thing, the reins, which are hooked to the bridle, which is just a bit in the horse's mouth. And that horse will go anywhere you want, any command. That's the picture of meekness. Strong, full of strength and life, but completely bridled by the Spirit of God, under the control of God. Meek. That's a true disciple, porn spirit, meek. And going on from there, you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Do you understand when you see your desperate need that you must live your life in utter dependency on God? That's when you hunger and thirst for righteousness. The only time you don't is when you are drifting from God, becoming drunk with the cares of this life as it were. Inflated with your own pride, which Jesus talked about causes you to take the upper seat and He says, look out, let someone come along later and tell you to take the back seat and you don't want to go. It's in those times we cease to hunger for righteousness because otherwise every day that you live you long to be close to Him and you hunger for what only He can give you to live the life God intended you to live on this earth. And then He says, blessed are the merciful you understand that when you truly know the grace of God Daily in your life to forgive you for your sin When you walk with the Lord and, and as the time goes by in your life The sin within you becomes more sinful to you And that open door to the throne of grace Becomes the most precious door in your life Do you understand that as you're bathed in that grace And you hold intention within your life Failure, victory, and forgiveness as a great triad that you live by, do you understand that it makes you merciful? Because you're merciful in a biblical sense where you don't um, compromise with sin, you don't take it fast and loose, you don't excuse it, but at the same time, you know that there's so much grace and forgiveness that you become that way with others. And then, as you're moving through all of this, you become pure in heart. Those are the ones that see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. Quick Repenters, Short Account Before God, those are the pure in heart. Not the perfect, but the pure in heart. And over a period of time, to be pure in heart is to be mastered by the Bible. To master the Bible until it masters you. So where you react, knee-jerk reaction is Bible. To where you agree with God about the things that God is is very clear on. That's to be pure in heart. And to then to be a peacemaker, you are not equipped to be a peacemaker until you have been through that whole process. And I already explained what a peacemaker is to you, willing to go through the confrontation necessary to bring the truth to bear on sin, so that sin can be dealt with, repented of, forgiven, and replaced by peace. This is a true disciple. When you become this, as you become this, and you stick to this, you will be like Christ. At that point, you will begin to be persecuted. The Bible says, Woe unto you when all men speak well of you. Let me ask you a question. Do all men speak well of you today? If they do, you're in a bad shape. You're in bad condition spiritually. Because if you are one with a beatitude attitude, Christ-like, All men are not going to speak well of you. Some will shrug you off, some will be indifferent, and some will be downright hostile. Jesus said, I'm not going up to the feast. Why? Because they were seeking to kill him. So I must go a certain way on a certain day on a certain route. Because the persecution was great. And you know why it's like that? You know why people persecute you for righteousness' sake? You know why he says in verse 11, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, when they say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake? You know why he says, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. They persecuted the prophets who were before you. Because, you see, Jesus said, he says it in uh, John 7 to his brothers, he says, I'm not going up to the feast, you go anytime you want, it doesn't make any difference, because his brothers didn't believe in him. He says, so for you, it's not an issue. The volatile, explosive crowd in Jerusalem isn't looking for you. They don't hate you. They're looking for me. And he said, the reason they're looking for me is because I tell them about their sin. I am willing to confront them with their sin. He was the ultimate peacemaker and the ultimate solution, you see, to sin. He says, they hate me because I tell them about their sin. Something wrong with the church in the 90s. Not everyone, but too many. That are not willing to confront people with their sin. They're not willing to go through the confrontation because if there's anything that earmarks our era, it is this I don't want any confrontation of any kind. And it's a general mindset of our day. I don't want it. I can't deal with it. Jesus said, You're going to have to. And the most righteous will get the most confrontation and the most persecution. And the evidence is Jesus himself who they took out and they killed, right? And they found the most ghastly form of death for him man had ever invented. Invented by the Persians to be the most ghastly, passed on to the Romans who sort of enhanced it and made it a little worse. This is the portrait of a true disciple and the difficulty of that kind of life. But you know what? The blessedness is this. If you are that kind of disciple, then you make a difference in the world. And if you're not, you don't. That's why he goes on in verse 13. He says, You are the salt of the earth. And if the salt loses its flavor, how will it be seasoned? In other words, you you hear what he's saying? He's, He's sitting there with his disciples, multitudes all around. Maybe they can hear, maybe they can't. But what he's saying is this. This is the way it must be. And if you are this way, it will be rough, and they will persecute you, but you will make a difference. You will be salt. And the idea is, if you're not what the Beatitudes are here, then you're salt that's lost its flavor, savor, impact, whatever, however you want to translate it. How will it be seasoned? It is good for nothing, but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You understand the place of salt in those days? We have refrigerators, some have freezers in your garage full of food and everything We don't know what it's like to take meat and food and salt it down to preserve as a retardant against uh, the germ process to preserve that food They had to salt down everything in those days I mean Jenny Craig would have a fit if she had to live in those days (laughs) They had to salt down everything So salt to them was critical. Do you know that often Roman soldiers were paid in salt? You march the roads of Rome and their empire. You fight the battles, and you were a lucky man if you were paid in salt. You know why? Because it was so valuable. If you had salt, man, everybody was lined up after you. So when Jesus says, you are the salt of the world, he says it in the context of that day, and the ones that are, are true disciples. And to make a true disciple is not easy because he's got the multitudes around him here. He's talking to the twelve here. Later on, we see him in John. He's got the multitudes there. They leave. The twelve stay. There's multitudes again. They leave. They stay. And how many disciples are found when God incarnate, Jesus Christ, is done discipling and he leaves the earth? Do you know how many were left found meeting in Jerusalem? In your Bible, in the book of Acts, it tells you, do you know? You might as well go there so you can see. And if you look at it, it will help you in the future. In Acts, the book of Acts, there was 120 in an upper room and all are filled with the Holy Spirit. 115. There it is, see? Just like I said. (laughs) Ha! Ha! One fifteen. In those days Peter stood up among the believers A group numbering about 120 Now maybe that isn't everybody that there was But these are the ones doing what Jesus said Jesus said go and wait The ones that did what he said These are the ones And there's 120 Where are the multitudes that walked all over each other to get to him Where are the people that shouted Hosanna on the way in through the eastern gate As he came down the Mount of Olives that day His triumphant entry Where are those people There's 120 when He's left. God. Do you think it will be any easier for you? No. That it's those 120 that continued, filled with the Holy Spirit, committed to the Word and living the life that went out and they became those labeled by the world, not Christians. They became those who turned the world upside down for Christ. They are the ones who... Influenced the ones around them so that it was in Antioch that they were first called Christians again by the world. Because they were so much like Christ, it means Christ-bearer Christian, that when you see Jesus, and you can go back to John now, that when you see Jesus in John 7, you read after these things Jesus walked in Galilee. You understand he's walking and he's discipling a few men. And you understand at the same time that out of those few men, there were Peter, James, and John who were the inner circle of his life. They went to the Mount of Transfiguration. They went in with him to raise the girl from the dead. They went into the garden when he got down on his face and agonized and he was sweating blood. The rest were at the gate of the garden. And all of that, out of them, Peter was the closest to him. All of that is to say, the most perfect man who ever lived, the most perfect, loving shepherd, the greatest teacher, could only effectively work with 12 men. And out of those 12, even one defected, right? So that is to present to us reality. Reality. You cannot influence everybody in the world for Jesus. And there's going to come times when you will be guilty about it. Because the need is so tremendous. But we can only do what we can do. You understand? The issue is, am I doing that? That's the issue. Are there 12 in my life? Are there 3 in my life? Is there 1? Is there, is there a Peter? See? Is there a John? Is there a James? That's the issue. Because we're all called to discipleship. And it is a wonderful thing. And I want to say to you, having shown you the hardship, I only read scripture to, you to show it to you. I raised our heroes to our thinking. The hardship is worth it. It is absolutely worth it. You know, when William Carey went to India, he went with the intention of translating the local languages into scripture. He worked long and hard until he got, you know, to the point where he had exhausted himself. Very few converts. You look at the life of Henry Martine, same kind of thing. They both did a similar work, but at the end of their lives, they couldn't count thousands and yet, Carry and Martine, I think it was Martine that had been wor- doing his work. And then, after years and years, the building with all of his work finished transcripts, papers, caught fire and burnt to the ground. Burnt to the ground. And he was on a trip. He came back and he found it. And he got on his knees and he says, Lord, I think I have just enough strength in me to live just long enough To do it all over again And he immediately went Sat down Picked up his pen And started back to work But when he died There weren't millions Thousands that had been Converted to Christ But His work Carrie's work Opened the door to India For so much of the work That has gone on And it has always been Go out Into the world Whether it's your neighborhood Your job Whatever And make disciples See that you become Someone Who is able to do that And May I say this, that you must open your eyes sometime along the way to the fact that in the crowd, as you start to become a true disciple, and many do not want to be, as you make the commitment, Satan will pull out his cleverest attacks to neutralize you, get you into neutral, and then get you sliding down the hill. Anybody ever gone up a hill in a car with stick shift the clutch? Ever driven in San Francisco <laughs> like that? That is a nightmare, you know? You're going up the hill in San Francisco, it's crowded, it's rush hour, and you've got a clutch, you know? And so you stop at the light, and you're trying to do the gun thing, rah, 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 foo, 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 you know, and the clutch and the brake at the same time. And then, you know, you're reaching for the radio, and you bump the shift, and it goes into neutral, and now you're sliding, everybody's honking. It's the biggest nightmare, even if no one's behind you. The devil wants to bump you right into neutral. So you start sliding backwards. And if he can do that, he's won a great victory. It takes all of your wits about you in the Christian life to keep going forward to be a true disciple. All of your wits. And there are many that never become real true beatitude attitude Christ-like people. I believe God wants to make you and you and you and you and all of you Those who will stand out among the masses as true disciples, reproducers of reproducers After these things Jesus walked in Galilee For he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him Now the feast of tabernacles was at hand His brothers therefore said to him Depart from here and go into Judea That your disciples may see the works you're doing For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, isn't that good advice? Uh, Worldly wise. You know, worldly advice. You want a big following? What are you doing here in Galilee? Jerusalem is the hot spot. If you want a big following, go to Jerusalem and get your big following. But John wants to show us how off that advice is. And he says, for even his brothers did not believe in him. Do you understand? He loved these guys. He grew up with them. He's the firstborn. That means there were others behind him. Firstborn spiritually of us, but also he was the firstborn in his home. We know the Bible tells us that he had brothers. We know that in Galatians we find out that his brother James was his brother. So he has these brothers and they don't believe him and they give him this advice. And it says, because his brothers did not believe in him. Before we pass on to that, to the flow of the context, I want to just say this. As you become that true disciple, this is going to be difficult. Follow me on this thought. As you become that true disciple, what's going to happen is, loved ones around you are not going to respond. Some of them. Some will, some won't. And what happens then, is that you become discouraged. And you think, these very people I love the most that are closest to me and know me best, they don't even respond. Must be my fault. If you ever have felt like that, if you ever do feel like that in the future, remember, will you, John 7, verse 5, that even his brothers did not believe in him? Do you understand the message? It is this that his witness was perfect. Model brother. Never sassing back to mom and dad. Model brother. He's about 33 now. His ministry almost over. So they have known him a long time. Long enough to know how model he is. They've seen his miracles. they would heard his sermons. All of this. They've lived with him. Think of this. To hear the sermons of Christ. To see the miracles of Christ. To live personally with Christ at his side and to, after all this time, still not believe. Isn't that amazing? But you see, what it says is this. It says that the mere possession of full gospel privilege with full light does not necessarily bring about a conversion every time. You understand? If his brothers don't believe in him, what that says is here is the hardness of man's heart, that you can see it all, hear it all, be exposed to the light of it all, And still not believe. They don't believe on Him. And the idea is this. Until a man or a woman has a broken, poor-in-spirit heart before God, they cannot go into the kingdom of God and they won't. It takes the work of the Holy Spirit to bring a man or a woman into the light to break open the darkness and pierce it and bring in the light of God, to soften the heart, to melt it, to plow it, however you want to look at it, to take it from being rocky ground, stony ground in the sower's parable, to being the kind of ground that when the seed hits it, it bursts forth in life and brings forth fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And I say that to encourage you, because some of you are living it right. Many of you are living it right. You're just everything God wants you to be. And yet, you're mourning over the fact and you feel it's your fault. My wife has not come to Christ. In fact, she's farther away, you're thinking. Or or my son, my wayward son. And I did everything I could. And And in the same household, there's one godly and one ungodly. Don't ever forget. God created man. God created woman. God brought woman to man. They had children. And they had children. And they were... In the beginning, perfect, perfect parents. Even after the fall, they carried with them that knowledge of being perfect, something we can never, any of us, look back and say, I remember when I was perfect. (laughs) You see, kid, before I had you, when I was perfect. See, we can't do that. They were perfect when God made them. And yet, Cain kills Abel. Abel is as godly as he could be, and Cain is murderous. When you are discouraged and you feel like it's my fault, and the devil saying yes, and the devil saying, don't you see, it's not worth it, join the masses, enjoy the crowd, but don't get on this disciple thing. Remember Jesus and remember his brothers. And we could go on through the Bible with like with all these examples. And don't be discouraged. Be encouraged that only the Holy Spirit can break the heart, hard heart of a man or a woman. And then the knowledge, the light they've received becomes, for them, salvation. In the end, it's God. You can't convert anybody. You can be a witness and a light. You can be salt and light. But you cannot convert anyone. And know this, will you? That in that place, at least... You're weeping and you're caring like you've never cared before. That's something God has put in you. It's a great proof of the glory of God in you. And in that place, you're not alone because Jesus was there. Don't you think it broke the heart of Jesus Christ to turn around to be with His followers, His most devout followers, and His own brothers? Don't believe in Him? Don't you think the devil was sneaking around to the other disciples and saying, if He's really the Messiah... If this is all really true, if he's really so powerful, why don't his own brothers believe in him? Don't you think they went to bed and looked at the stars at night, sometimes Peter, James, John, and think, yeah, his own brothers don't believe him. Then he gets up one morning and Peter's got a weird vibe. <laughs> his own brothers, yeah, you know. Jesus is going, what is wrong with Peter this morning, you know? And he snaps out of it, and a day later, you know, James is over there, weird vibe. You know, hand me that cup of water, will you, James? I don't know. Well, all right. But James, you of got an attitude, James. Yeah, well, your brothers don't believe in you. Maybe you're not the Messiah. Can't you see it? These guys were human. This is what happens to us. And so by understanding them, the truth makes us free and it blocks the devil's work in our lives. Well, Jesus was very sensitive to the fact that he had three years in this life to disciple what amounted to 12 men, and peripheral people on the edge, but 12 men, really, one defected. And when he left, those 12 men were truly discipled, and they each one basically went to their death for their witness for Christ. They were everything he wanted them to be. There's so much more in here about the timing in the life of our Lord and how that affected him and how he ministered and how he lived. We're going to have to leave it for another message. Next time we'll talk about his timing and God's will. And this is absolutely fascinating to see why he waited to go to Jerusalem. He did go, but he had to wait, and then he went. And the route he went by, the time he got there, the way he showed himself, all critical and also full of instruction for us. Let's bow, shall we, for a word of prayer? Lord, we thank you that you are the great Savior of our souls. We thank you, Lord, there is so much forgiveness in you. In fact... There is no sin you will not forgive except rejecting you as our Lord and Savior. Lord, help us to come to receive the forgiveness that you have for us. And at the same time, Lord Jesus, help us to truly study your life and your ministry and the effect of your ministry. The realities, the hardships, the blessedness, all of it, that we might become, Lord, those who are truly discipled by you and the people you choose to bring into our life to disciple us. Lord, make us the kind of people that can deal with real issues, hardships, sin, become peacemakers, all these issues, that in the end, Lord, we might bring Christ, we might bring you to the lives of those people that you bring across our path. Help us, Lord, to open our eyes, to turn around, to look to each side in our life and see those that you want us to minister to. And help us to remember, Lord, that as human beings, we cannot minister to everyone. We cannot be close with everyone. There were twelve for you. Out of that three, closest of all, one. Help us, Lord, not to be slack and indifferent and lazy and uncaring, but to be wise and to make sure that our lives do count in as many other lives as possible. And Lord, we will be careful to give you all the glory for you are so worthy. Remind us, Lord, of all you have done for each one of us and encourage us on by your grace as we look to you, Lord, now asking for the power and the work of your Holy Spirit and your word within us as we go forth to seek to be producers of reproducers. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.